Let's open our Bibles to Amos chapter number 6 this morning. Amos chapter number 6. I do want to wish you a happy 4th of July weekend. Uh, This holiday matters. Amen. It probably matters more today than it has in a while, I think, in our country. And uh, I think that we ought to all be able to agree what a blessing it is to be an American in this day that we live in. People clamoring from all over the world to enjoy what me and you have this morning. And uh, praise the Lord for His goodness and grace. Amos chapter number 6. We have been preaching through the book of Amos over the past few weeks, sometimes on Sunday mornings, sometimes on Sunday nights, just as the Lord has sort of led us to. And it has not been our intent to uh, preach an exhaustive series on the book of Amos, but rather just to walk through and pick up the passages that speak to, well, my heart, just to be honest, because I'm the one doing the studying. Somebody say amen to that. And uh, But I've found it hard to leave anything on the plate. As we've walked through the book of Amos, it seems like every every page that we turn, every place that we come to, there is present truth for us. What a shame it is that folks, myself included at times, don't spend more time in these books of the Old Testament because there's much present truth. How many of you know this, that uh, history, it doesn't repeat, but it does rhyme. Amen? And uh, it does present to us certain patterns in human behavior, because we're human beings that we find present throughout the ages. And so God's Word, we may read something that was written to a different group of people in a different time, and we may have to take into account the differences But we can also find in it truth that speaks immediately to the pulse and heartbeat of what we're going through in these days that we're living in. I just want to say I praise the Lord for the Word of God that it is a present help to us. Amos chapter number 6, and uh, I want to begin reading in verse number 1. We'll read the entirety of the the chapter. It is not very long, uh, just 14 verses, but I want you to get the context here as we preach the Word of God. Verse number 1. The prophet begins in this way, Woe to them that are at ease in Zion, and trust in the mountain of Samaria, which are named chief of the nations, to whom the house of Israel came. Pass ye unto Calna, and see, and from thence go ye to Hamath the great. Then go down to Gath of the Philistines. Be they better than these kingdoms, or their border greater than your border? Ye that put far away the evil day, and cause the seed of violence to come near, that lie upon beds of ivory, and stretch themselves upon their couches, and eat lambs out of the flock, and the calves out of the midst of the stall, that chant to the sound of the vile, and invent to themselves instruments of music like David, that drink wine in bowls, and anoint themselves with the chief ointments, but they are not grieved for the affliction of Joseph. Therefore now shall they go captive with the first that go captive, and the banquet of them that stretch themselves shall be removed. The Lord God hath sworn by Himself, saith the Lord God of hosts, I abhor the excellency of Jacob, and hate his palaces. Therefore will I deliver up the city with all that is therein. And it shall come to pass, if there remain ten men in one house, that they shall die, and a man's uncle shall take him up. And he that burneth him to bring out the bones out of the house and shall say unto him that is by the sides of the house, Is there yet any with thee? He shall say, No. 
Then shall he say, Hold thy tongue, for we may not make mention of the name of the Lord. For behold, the Lord commandeth, and he will smite the great house with breaches, and the little house with clefts. Notice especially these questions, these next two verses. The prophet says, Shall horses run upon the rock? Will one plow there with oxen? For ye have turned judgment into gall, and the fruit of righteousness into hemlock. Ye which rejoice in a thing of naught, which say, Have we not taken to us horns by our own strength? But behold, I will raise up against you a nation, O house of Israel, saith the Lord God of hosts, and they shall afflict you from the entering in of Hemath unto the river of the wilderness. Let's pray together. Father, what a blessing it is to be in your house. I pray that you'd speak to each and every heart that's under the sound of my voice, some probably in the parking lot, and undoubtedly these in front of us. Lord, we've all come because we need to hear from heaven. And Lord, we may not even know how great our need is this morning. We may not know how close we are to the precipice. Father, we know that You are gracious. We know that You are merciful. And that Your loving kindness has granted us a stay and a season that we might fix our hearts upon Thee, that we might repent of our sins, that we might be a holy people. I pray that You'd help us this morning as we approach Your Word to allow it to do the work that it must necessarily do in our hearts if we are to be made more like Christ. And Lord, I pray none of us would leave here unchanged by Your Spirit and Your Word. We'll be sure to thank You for it. Lord, we do love You, and we ask it in Christ's name. Amen. This morning, I'll take for my text verses 12 and 13. We'll preach most of the chapter, but I want us to center our attention on these two verses. We find a pattern in these two verses, and it is a pattern of two. The first thing we notice is there are two questions that are asked. Shall horses run upon the rock? The second one, will one plow there with oxen? Then we have two condemnations that are given against the children of Israel. The Lord says that ye have turned judgment into gall and the fruit of righteousness into hemlock. Then in verse 13 we have two characterizations of how they were living and behaving and what was leading to the judgment of God. He says, Ye which rejoice in a thing of naught, which say, Have we not taken to us horns by our own strength? In these two verses, I think we have an instructive invocation and exhortation to you and I today that we might make sure that our hearts are fixed upon the Lord, that we have no unconfessed sin in our life, and that we are living right and clean before the God of heaven. But I think that the, the, the phrase that sets the tone for every bit of this, and, and I'm doing my best this morning, I, I, wanna, I don't want to preach to the holiday, I don't want to merely preach uh, something that is uh, seasonal, but I want to preach the Word of God. But I cannot help but look at our country today. I cannot help but look at our nation today. I cannot help but look at the church today and hear carefully the echo of the words that the prophet says as he opens this chapter when he says, Woe to them that are at ease in Zion. I believe this in this day that we live in, that we are dangerously close to losing some things. Now, I'll tell you this, 
Everything runs downstream of spiritual condition. One of the things that you'll hear people say is that politics runs downstream of culture. That's true. The culture sets the tone for what the political policy will become. But can I tell you something? Culture runs downstream of spiritual condition. Your culture is dictated by your biblical or unbiblical worldview. Now that's not to say if you don't agree with me about something that you're a bad person or you're wrong. I ain't gonna tell you that. The Lord might tell you that. No, I'm joking. Don't, don't, don't get mad at me. But, but I do mean sincerely to say that my intention is not to pl- preach a political message today. I'm here to preach to God's people. But I do want to merely say this by way of a little introduction. I think part of the problem is we are sitting at ease in our situation. Many of the problems our country faces are first world problems. They're things that people in the rest of the world don't have the time or the energy to be offended at or to be upset with. And I fear that as has always been the case with civilizations throughout human history, they very often don't know it's lost until it's been lost for a while. You see, we find in Amos chapter 6 a nation that is on the precipice. They're not just near danger. Man, they're in danger. They're not just close to the edge. I mean, they're already falling over the edge. And God in His mercy and loving kindness, He calls out to the people of Israel once again and begs them and pleads with them to see the folly of their way and to turn their hearts back to Him. Because a nation can only be saved when God's people turn their hearts back to Him. There is no political remedy. There is no social remedy. It is only a spiritual remedy. And it begins with you and I this morning. So this is not a political message. But I do believe that if we take this message to heart, and if we catch fire with it, a fire that would spread, I believe it would change our political condition. I believe it would change our cultural condition. Brother Ken, I believe it would change everything if we would just gather what the prophet's saying here. Let me give you a little introduction to set the tone and to move through the chapter because I want you to understand what's being said here. When we approach the Word of God, we find that verse number 1 begins with a word of woe. He says, woe to them that are at ease in Zion. Now, what was the woe given for? Because they were at ease when they should have been at alarm. They were at ease when they should have been troubled. They were comfortable when they should have been confessing their sins. They were enjoying the fruit of many years' labor and peace and prosperity. And they had blinded themselves to the moral decay to the spiritual decay, to the political decay that was rotting their kingdom from the inside out. Can I tell you this? Israel did not fall by foreign foes. Those foreign foes were the instruments of God's judgment. But it was Israel's sin that caused her to fall. Let me say that we're the most powerful country that's ever existed. We are. When you compare the disparity in military technology between us and the rest of the world, we are the most powerful country in human history. It will not be our foes. It will be our foolishness that destroys us as a nation. We find it opens with a word of woe. And then in verse 2, we find a word of wisdom. 
the prophet exhorts them to consider some other kingdoms. Some of these we are familiar with, some of them we are not. He tells them in verse 2 to pass ye unto Calne. Calne was an ancient city who was founded by Nimrod and it would have lately fallen to the Assyrians. He then says that they are to go from thence to Hamath the Great. And that city which the Bible denotes as the Great. Now you're a pretty great city if it's the Great, right? I mean, Knoxville ain't even Knoxville the Great. Somebody say amen to that. Hamath the Great. And yet it is a footnote in history. The only thing the Bible records for us is that there was a king by the name of Toai that lived there in the days of David. But by the time the prophet is pinning down the Holy Ghost words, the, the, the name Hamath is just something that you would pull out of a dusty geography book and nothing else. Then he points to the city of Gath of the Philistines. You know something interesting? When you study the history of those five cities of the Philistines, you'll find that at a certain point Gath just disappears. It's just not even mentioned anymore, Brother Ken. It is assumed that it was in the days of Uzziah that it was destroyed, but it is now too just a pile of rubble. And the prophet says, consider these kingdoms. And then he asks this question. Now, if you're not careful, you'll read the opposite here. He says, be they better than these kingdoms or their border greater than your border? Now, there's a temptation when you read that to think what he's saying is these were better kingdoms than yours, but they have been destroyed. That's not what he's saying. He was saying these were kingdoms with less benefit, with less advantage, with less favor, with less blessing. But when they ran afoul of the God of Israel, God allowed them to be destroyed. He's talking about their leisure, their comfort, their benefit, and their responsibility in light of it. Can I tell you this? With great privilege comes great responsibility. The Bible teaches that to whom much is given, much is required. And the prophet says, think about these kingdoms. They were not the apple of God's eye. But when they ran afoul of the God of glory, He destroyed them. And He says, now think about you, Israel, who has been given the oracles of God, who has been given the tables of law, who has been given the Urim and the Tumim, who has been given the priesthood, who has been given the sacrifice, who has been given all of these witnesses. And He's saying, don't you think God gave you all that? Don't you think you're going to have to answer for what you've done with it? Can I say this this morning? America's been given a lot. Hey, you think about the men of God that have walked on this soil in the past 200 years. You think about the witness that has transpired in this nation. We have a lot to answer for. There's a word of wisdom. He's saying, look at other nations and consider. And can I just say this? And I've said this a time or two here lately. I don't know why. It's just been on my heart. It's just been on my mind. But listen, we we, we have a very American-centric perspective on the world. I don't think that's bad necessarily. We're Americans. We ought to view the world through that prism. I don't think we ought to be made feel guilty for that. Somebody say amen for that. But I, I do think we ought to recognize this, that listen, the, the illustrious history of our nation is but a drop. It is but a, it is but a, a, a comma in the stream of human history. Listen, if Rome could fall, you don't think we could fall? Hey, listen, if Babylon could fall in the night, you think we couldn't fall? If the Medo-Persians could be overrun by the ragtag group of Greek city-states, if the two million strong army of Xerxes could be overrun by Alexander and his men, do you think we couldn't fall? And if you think that that great military machine of the Greek empire could not be snuffed out through the death of one of their leaders, you think we couldn't be destroyed? It's uncomfortable, isn't it? 
but it's the truth. We think we're perched in this untouchable place. But we have seen over the past six months how precarious our circumstances are. We have seen how ready and willing people are for things to fall apart. There's a word of wisdom here, and then there's a word of warning. Now, I'm just going to walk through these very quickly because this is just an introduction. But I want you to notice, he notes three things, Brother Ken, about them. Number one, he points to the fact they were confident. Look at verse number three. He says, ye that put far away the evil day. Now, what does he mean by that? Well, they were saying, God had said, I'm going to judge you if you continue to live in sin. I'm going to judge you if you continue to pervert judgment. I'm going to judge you if you continue to walk in unrighteousness. But here's what they always said. They always said, well, it won't happen in my lifetime. They always said, it can't happen here. It happened to these other places, but it cannot happen here. We're not there yet. You know, in the days when Jeremiah was preaching, the Babylonians were breathing down the neck of the kingdom of Judah. You understand that Nebuchadnezzar had already tried twice to destroy Jerusalem. And in Jeremiah's day, there were prophets, false prophets walking around saying, peace, peace. I mean, Nebuchadnezzar is rolling his war machines up to the gates of Jerusalem and there were people saying, peace, peace. And when the prophet preached the judgment of God, he was thrown into a pit and ignored and dismissed. I'm saying this, they put the evil day far away. They said, it could never happen here. And then, you know what that produced? That caused the seed of violence to come near. You know what happens? Do you remember this? I don't know if you were like this, but when I was growing up, I got to a certain age and and mama was willing to whip me. It didn't matter how old I was. Probably she still would if she could catch me and hold me down. But I got to a certain age where she, like most mamas, would say something like this, would say, just wait till your daddy comes home. And my 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 receptiveness to that threat was directly proportional to where the hands on the clock were. Daddy got home at 3.15 exactly every single day. And I knew if it was 10 o'clock, I might not listen that much to that threat. I was thinking she'll forget by 3.15. If it was 11 o'clock, I'd take it a little more seriously. If it was 1.30, I was starting to sweat. If it was 2.45 when she said that, son, it meant something. You see, I put off the day of judgment and it would change the way I responded to the threats that were delivered to me. This is what the children of Israel were doing. They were saying, it won't happen in my lifetime. So why do I care? They were saying, it's going to come one day, but it won't come now. And here's what happens. When you view judgment as this abstract concept that sits somewhere way off in the ether or is relegated to the dusty pages of history, when you say to yourself, it could never happen here, our cities couldn't fall, our cities couldn't burn, our food chains could not break down, civil unrest could never tear out in our community, it could never happen here. You know what happens when you do that? You live any old way you want. And you disregard the thought of God in your mind. I'm saying this, they did two things. One, they deceived themselves by believing judgment could never happen to them. And here's a question I'd have, why? Why? Why could judgment not happen to us? Does God not love us? Does He not care for us? Has He not put us where we are? 
And because of that, they destroyed themselves. They were confident. Number two, they were comfortable. They were comfortable. We're comfortable. I hope we're comfortable. If we can't be comfortable where we're at now, ain't nothing going to make us comfortable. But there's a danger in that comfort. Listen to what it says. They were comfortable, number one, in their wealth. Verse 4, that lie upon beds of ivory and stretch themselves upon their couches and eat the lambs out of the flock and the calves out of the midst of the stall. You know what that means? With the flock, they just walk... Any old time they were hungry, they'd just walk out and say, yeah, give me that one. They never worried about whether they were going to get food. Calves in the stall. Why does it say in the stall? They were preparing those calves. They were fattening them up. In other words, they were comfortable in their wealth. They thought, I've got plenty to eat. I've got a comfortable place to sleep. I've got a a roof over my head. I've got food in my pantry. Nothing could ever touch me. Can I tell you something? That can all be gone in a second. In a second. We have become so removed from the concept of surviving. And when I say survival, I, I, listen, I don't mean a three-day backpack hike. I'm talking about surviving. I'm talking about not knowing where your next meal is going to come from. Not knowing even if you had a hundred pounds of gold, where you'd even go to try to get that food. We're so far removed from that that it is almost unthinkable to us to exist in that scenario. Our society comes apart when there's a shortage on hand sanitizer. That's where we're at. I'm just telling you, they were comfortable in their wealth. Number two, they were comfortable in their worship. Verse 5, he says that chant to the sound of the vial and invent to themselves instruments of music like David. I don't think what is being spoken of here is necessarily wrong in and of themselves. Here's what, I, here's what I think the prophet's saying. He's saying the judgment of God is getting ready to fall on you and you're going to church and acting like nothing's wrong. That chant to the sound of the vial. You know what they're doing? They're singing. That's praise. You know what it is when you chant? It's mindlessly parroting something. That's what's so wicked about all that Eastern mysticism garbage is because it's thoughtless. It's not the intelligent communication of a creature to its creator. It's just mindless chanting and droning. And that's what, that's what they were doing. They were just chanting and they'd invented, they were so bored with their worship, they invented to themselves new instruments. They were so bored with the God they were worshiping that it became merely an activity of interest and intrigue to them. It wasn't about the God they were praising. It was about how they could do it better, more professionally. Man, that sounds like the church today. They were comfortable in their worship. Number three, they were comfortable in their wine. Look at verse 6. It says that drink wine in bowls and anoint themselves with the chief ointments. You know what they were doing? There's a phrase we might use today. They were pampering themselves. They were drinking wine in bowls, not in cups, in bowls, so they'd be too drunk to recognize the danger that was about to fall upon them. And they'd anoint themselves with chief ointments. You know what that is? That's pampering yourself. Uh, that, that, that's, uh, that's taking care of yourself, seeing to yourself, lavishing upon yourselves. In other words, it become all about them. I see the church, man. I don't know if you do. If you don't, that's fine. Come hit me in the mouth later. But I see the church there. Comfortable in its wealth. So comfortable in its worship that it's not even about the God that we worship anymore, but the process and the routine and the, the ingenuity of trying to find a better way to do it than the one down the block from us. Comfortable, comfortable, comfortable in their wine. All about me, man. All about me. All about me. That was Israel. 
You might say that's America. That's between you and God. I'm just saying that was Israel. And she fell. But you know the worst part of all of it? They were confident. They were comfortable. But then I see they were callous. You know the problem with all of it? God doesn't really say anything critical between verses 4 and the end of verse number 6. God doesn't necessarily say that, you know, you shouldn't uh, pamper yourself. He doesn't necessarily say that you shouldn't, uh, you know, enjoy your worship and, and that you shouldn't try to do it well. And, and I think we can read into that and, and maybe at a risk of sounding irreverent of the Word of God, and you know I don't mean it that way, reading between the lines and sort of seeing their condition. But you know the real problem with all of it was the end of verse 6. It says, but they are not grieved for the affliction of Joseph. God don't mind you and I being comfortable, but He does mind us being blind to the spiritual dangers that beset our nation. He wasn't begrudging them. They wouldn't have had any of that if God hadn't blessed them. He wasn't begrudging them for their wealth and prosperity. He wasn't begrudging them for their leisure and luxury. He was saying, you know, I've given you all this, and you don't even care that the country is falling to pieces. I see in this passage a preparatory word to set the tone for their mind and heart. There is a parenthetical portion, and I'll explain it to you. It looks forward into the time of the captivity, and it describes a scene that is sad indeed, in which a man, verse number 9, says, It shall come to pass if there remain ten men in one house that they shall all die. In other words, even ten grown men living together couldn't fight off any intruders, couldn't fight off the foe, they couldn't protect themselves, meaning strength would not avail them. And it says that a man's uncle shall take him up. Now, I've got uncles and I love them, praise the Lord for them, but it'd be a sad thing if the only person to see to my funeral arrangements was an uncle. I didn't have a daddy or a mama or a brother or a sister or a son or a daughter or somebody, but just sort of somebody that just felt like it was their obligation to do it because they were the only ones that were left. And that, I think, is what's being denoted there. And It says, a man's uncle shall take him up, and he that burneth him to bring out the bones out of the house. And when he walks out of the house with these bones in his arms, he'll turn and see a man leaning against the side of the house because there's no economy, there's no work, there's nowhere to go, there's nowhere to hide. He's just loafing about. And so he turns and sees this man and says, is there yet any with thee? And he shall say, no. In other words, saying, you got anybody alive in your house? And he'll say, no. I don't have anybody alive in my house. And he's carrying out the bones of his nephew, nobody closer to bury him. And whenever that man says no, he begins to curse. He begins to say an oath against the Lord. And this man will say, hold thy tongue. for We may not make mention of the name of the Lord. In other words, saying in that day they'll have learned their lesson. In that day they'll have learned to not take the Lord's name in vain. In that day, they'll have learned, they will view the name of the Lord as a terrifying, terrible thing. And this is why, verse 11, For behold, the Lord commandeth, and He will smite the great house with breaches, and the little house with clefts means you won't be able to run. It don't matter if it's a big house or a little house. He will commensurate to your situation, deal out and mete out judgment upon you. Then in verse number 12, we come to what fascinates me this morning. And I'm going to try to move through it swiftly. The prophet begins to tell by illustration, by elaboration, and by uh, condemnation or determinations what's going to happen to them. I want you to think very carefully with me about this. And let me just say this to you before I even preach it. We've been talking about America. 
But you understand America, really at its core, is the people that preside within it. I want you to listen carefully. America is not a government. America is not a body of ideals. Now, that distinction matters. You'll hear people say things like that, that America is a body of ideals. But that's not true. America is its people, the people that live within its borders, on its land. That's what makes America. You know how I know that? Because America still exists, but her ideals have changed severely since her founding. People will say, well, America is just ideals. I agree with you there were ideals associated with the founding of America. I will agree with you that it was those ideals that bonded together the people that founded this country. But a country is more than just its ideals. It's more than just its government. It is its people. So the only thing that can change America is its people. And the only people that are spiritually equipped to change the spiritual condition of a country is the saved, regenerated, born-again people in that country. Hey, we can look at, we can, we can watch the news and foment and scream and cuss, but we're the only ones with a line to God that can get a prayer through. Those of us that know God, I'm not saying just Walridge Baptist Church, but I'm saying Christians are the ones that can talk to the God of glory about it. We're the ones that can affect change. So here's what I see in this passage. I see a nation that is wayward. I see that that nation is wayward because her people are wayward. And I see God speak to the wayward hearts of her people. And I want this to be more than just, hey, it's America. It's Fourth of July. Yankee Doodle Dandy. Let's all glory to God. Thank the Lord we're Americans. I want you to ask this question to yourself. What kind of a citizen am I? What kind of a Christian am I? What kind of salt? What kind of light am I? And could God be speaking to me in this passage? Now, the first thing I notice are the prophet's illustrations. And they come in the form of two questions. They both center around the idea of rock as a surface. It says in verse 12, Shall horses run upon the rock? Will one plow there with oxen? Now, there's two things I think the prophet's really getting out at here. Let's stop and think about this. A man typically, if he was riding a horse, if he was racing upon a horse, if he was moving swiftly upon it, he typically would try to avoid rocky ground. Now, there's two reasons for that. One, that horse might slip. Or two, that horse might stumble. Uh, in fact, most of the time, that was an ancient battle strategy, is if you had uh, were facing someone with, with cavalry and you could put rocky ground between you and them and let them come to you, you stood a chance of breaking their cavalry because the horses would not be able to run across that rocky ground. And so the prophet asks a rhetorical question. You're supposed to already know the answer to this. Now, most of y'all probably don't ride horses, amen? But you're supposed to sort of already know the answer to this, and it's supposed to be no. A horse would not run upon rock. Now, here's why. Because of the precariousness of the path. Here's what the prophet was saying. You think you're sure-footed. You think you cannot fall. You think you are situated in a place where nothing can impede you. You've seen other nations fall. And can I say this, child of God? You've seen other Christians fall. You've seen other Christians play with sin and it destroy their lives. You've seen other Christians play with sin and it destroy their marriages. You've seen other Christians play with sin and it destroy their children. But somehow we think to ourselves, that's them, but it's not us. But listen, here's why a horse doesn't run. Because eventually, there'll be a slip of the foot. (laughs) Talk to anybody that's played around with sin. It usually goes pretty well for a season. Sin's pleasurable for a season. God's mercy and kindness and grace 
is, is abundant. And so they'll live in that sin for a while and everything seems to be going okay. And for a season, they'll even sort of maintain their current situation. They'll keep going to church. They'll have the same friends. They'll, they'll put on the same appearances that they always did. And everything seems like it's fine. And they thought to themselves, I've got my cake and eat it too. I can live in this sin. I can keep going to church. I can ignore it. I can try to get something out of the preaching. Hey, listen, the Word of God has power. Are you listening to me? The Word of God has so much power that even when you're out of fellowship with God, the Word of God still has the ability to strike your heart. In other words, it's possible to harbor a sin in our heart and in our mind, unconfessed, unrelented, unforsaken before God, and still come and sit in a, in, in a service and think to yourself, boy, that was good. That was good on prayer. I need to pray more. Boy, that was good on studying the Bible. I need to get in my Bible more. Uh, boy, that was good about loving your neighbor. I do need to love my neighbor more. All the while, you're dancing around that sin that you put a fence around in your heart that you refuse to do. And you think because the Word of God hits you square between the eyes, that must mean you're in fellowship with God. Hey, listen, if that sin ain't dealt with, you may be, listen, you may be hearing the Word, but you ain't hearing the voice. That's alright. I'd, I'd really, I'd planned on most of y'all walking out by this point anyway. I'm just saying to you this morning, you can, you can put on for a while, but eventually there'll be a slip of the foot. When that happens, there'll be a sudden fall. There'll be a sudden fall. It'd kill a man if a horse fell on him. And I've seen people who were going and, and seemed to be doing all right, seemed to be going for the Lord, and then all of a sudden, man, the fall of that house was great. And it wrecked them. He points to the precariousness of their path. Number two, he asks this question. That same rock that a horse couldn't run on, Could you take a plow and plow that with oxen? Now, the answer is obvious. The answer is no. But what's he speaking of here? He's speaking of a hard surface. I'm going to say it this way. I think the first question deals with the precariousness of their path. I think the second one deals with the hardness of their heart. You know why? You couldn't plow with a, uh, with, with a plow or with oxen upon rock. You know why? Very simply. You can't disturb the surface. The surface has to be broken because nothing can grow on rock. The seed can't take root. There's no nourishment there. There has to be a brokenness to get to that part where the seed can grow. Are you listening to me this morning? Are you hearing what I'm saying though? I know you're listening, but are you? I, I, I guarantee I've got the attention of everybody in this room, but are you hearing what I'm saying? It requires a brokenness for God to do a living and lasting work. See, here's the problem. The surface couldn't be disrupted. They kept, they kept that stony exterior at all times. Can I tell you something? I, I don't think our spirituality is vested in the external idiosyncrasies through which we respond to God. Some folks weep and cry. Some folks shout. Some folks... But we all ought to move. You may respond in a different external, visible demeanor or countenance than I do. But there's something wrong when God can't break our hearts. There's something wrong when our life can't be plowed up. There's something wrong when we've told God, I'll go to church and I'll sing the songs and I'll put on a smile and I'll shake the hands, but I'm not changing anything about the way I'm living. The hardness of their heart. You see, the surface couldn't be disturbed. So you know what that meant? That meant that the seed couldn't be distributed. 
prophet after prophet after prophet after prophet. God called, stood up in the land of Israel. Talking about a place where Elijah had walked, prayed down fire from heaven. Talking about a place where Elisha had walked and raised people from the dead. I'm talking about a place where Isaiah had ministered, a place where Jeremiah would one day minister. I'm talking about a place where Hosea and Joel had stood. I'm talking about a place where untold masses of unnamed prophets that the Spirit of God didn't see fit to record the details of their lives had stood and preached in that place. But all the preaching in the world, all the preaching in the world, I'm a preacher. You understand that? I'm a preacher. It's what I do. It's what I love. It's my passion. But even I know that all the preaching in the world won't do a bit of good if the soul is not broke up first. If you won't allow the veneer of your life, of your spirituality, the delusion of your infallibility to be broken enough for God to say something uncomfortable to you, then there'll be no work done in your life. One man said this, that ground that will not be plowed will be forsaken as stone. There's a place we can get in our life where God says the only thing that will get through to you is judgment. You remember in the New Testament Christ talked about the judgment that He would bring as a person upon the land of Israel? And He said this, He called Himself the chief cornerstone. And He said that you'll either be broken upon that rock or that rock will grind you to dust. God has His ways of breaking the hearts of His people so that He can get in there and plant the seed of righteousness and obedience. He'll use as hard a hammer as He has to. But guess what? He'll use a soft touch if you'll let Him. <laughs> he'll, use, he'll use a soft touch. You know how the ground gets soft? I ain't going to get into all my gardening parables, but would you listen? You know how the ground gets soft? You have to turn it often. That's what keeps it soft has to be turned off. Hey, listen, if you don't ever walk out there and turn that soil and you come out of there after two years, you ain't even touched, you'll be hard as a rock. That's why we got to be under the preaching of the Word of God is that soil, Brother Ken, has to be getting turned and turned and turned. We go to church once a week, that soil gets a little hard. We go to church once a month, that soil gets a little hard. But listen, when we're in, I'm talking about in, and we're under the preaching of the Word of God every opportunity. No excuses, no distractions, no, no misplaced priorities. We're just there. We're just there where we're supposed to be under the preaching of the Word of God. When we do that, you know what we'll find? That soil will be a lot softer. It'll be a lot softer. And it won't take as much pressure to turn the soil. I see the first portion, the prophet's illustration. Now we see his elaborations. You know what he says? He explains how they've done this. He says, number one, you have turned judgment into gall. Number two, he says that you have turned the fruit of righteousness into hemlock. Now, I think that first phrase, judgment into gall, could maybe be taken a couple ways. He could be saying that the judgment that you as a righteous nation are tasked with dispensing upon your people... You have so perverted it that people are bitter towards it. I think, let me make another America statement, I think we're about there. I do. Get mad at me if you want, but I think we're there. I think we live in a country where we have crafted these, these extraordinary nets that only catch the small fish. 
I think we live in a country where people can get away with high crimes and treason and they'll throw a, uh, they'll throw a single mom in jail for not wearing a mask at a public park. And I don't know about you, but that kind of just makes me a little mad. It just galls me. It galls me. Are you listening? It galls me to think that we live in a country where people can get away with all manner of corruptness and wickedness. And then you know what happens? Then when the arm of government tries to reach in and say, believe us, trust us, do as we say, we're doing it for your benefit, there's a resentment in the hearts of the people. There's a bitterness. There's a mistrust. I think that was sort of what had happened in the land of Israel. But I think there's another understanding too. I don't think it's just talking about the judgment of government. I think it's talking about the judgment of God. And I thought about it this way. Notice, I think the first phrase, judgment into God, I think it deals with their attitude towards God's judgment. In other words, we know one thing for sure, that they were unhearing towards God's prophets. Now, God chastens His people. God, in working in your life and mine, He doesn't bring ill into your life or mine because He's mad at us. He does that because He's trying to elicit to us, from us, obedience. So when He brought judgment upon the land of Israel, it wasn't because He hated Israel. Israel was the apple of His eye. He had borne them out on His everlasting arms out of Egyptian darkness and into the land. He had driven out their foes in front of them. He didn't hate them. But here's how it was supposed to go. Listen, if they sinned, there's supposed to be a prophet that stand up and warn them. And then when the chastening of God came, they were supposed to say, you know, that happened because of our disobedience. That happened because we disobeyed God and we were unrighteous and it was our fault and it was our sins and we're going to repent and turn towards God. What happens if you never listen to the prophet in the land, though? Well, then, instead of regarding that judgment as being an act of love and of mercy, you view it as the actions of a petulant, resentful God. You see, they were unhearing of God's prophets and because of that, they were unheeding towards God's punishment. And they looked at it and said, if God really loved us, He wouldn't allow this to happen. If God really loved us, He, he wouldn't allow this to happen. I remember 20 years ago, man, when, when, when the, the first time, maybe more, probably more, guarantee it's more, 25 years ago, when, when, when uh, two uh, kids in trench coats walked into a public school and shot and killed a bunch of people. I was a child. I remember watching it on TV. And I remember hearing adults say things like this. Well, where was God in all this? It didn't take long. Some old leather-lunged preacher stood up and said, well, you kicked him out of everything, bless God. But you know, that's just, that's just the reaction of man's heart when his heart, heart is hardened. He sees those things happen and instead of responding in a self-examinatory way, instead of saying, what have we done? How have we brought this upon us? Instead, they disregard it and they say, well, if there is a God, He doesn't love us and care about us. And how often do we say to ourselves when bad things happen in our life, we may not, we may be spiritual enough that we don't shake our fist at God, but we get moping about it and we get, we get down in the face about it and we start saying things like this. Well, you know, if God really loved me, Brother Ken, why would He let this happen? They had turned the judgment of God into bitterness. It should have been a drawing thing. It should have been a, a cleansing thing. It should have been a renewing thing. But they had turned it into bitterness because they weren't willing to accept the fact. They may bear some culpability in the actions. 
Then the Bible, notice not just their, their attitude towards God's judgment, but notice their attitude towards God's blessings. So on one side you have God bringing heartache and pain into their life, and instead of that being a cleansing thing, and then viewing it as, well, God loves me, He's trying to deal with me, instead it turned them bitter. What, what did they do with God's blessings? The Bible says the fruit of righteousness. Can I tell you something? The reason you and I sit in a free country today, it's the fruit of righteousness. It's the fruit of righteousness. The reason we could drive up and down the street today, the reason that I got two cars in my driveway and you probably got two in yours, or if they're not very good, you may have six or eight. Some folks just like that. But the reason is it's the fruit of righteousness. We were once a righteous nation. Don't task me with scaling and ranking where we're at in our country. I know we kill about a million unborn children a year. And I have a hard time saying that we're a righteous nation when we do that. It's our greatest sin. It's our greatest sin. It is worse than anything that this country has ever done. That we kill a million unborn children every year. Over 42 million in our nation's history. The only, the only people worse is China. And it took a, it took a forced abortion policy to make China worse than America in that respect. So I, I have trouble. Don't make it my job to decide where we're at on that spectrum. But I do know that what we enjoy today is the fruit of righteousness. We, 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 at some point in our history, we've been a righteous nation, and as such, God has blessed us. God has favored us. I mean, how, how, how else could we say it? How did we in, in, in 250 years get where we're at? And really, in some ways, we were where we're at 70 years ago. How did we get there? God favored us. That was the fruit of righteousness. It says they turned it into hemlock. Hemlock is a poison. It's a bitter herb, but it's a poison. Was it Socrates, I guess, that killed himself with hemlock? It was a highly poisonous plant. So here's what they did. It's very interesting. They took the punishment of God and disregarded that it was God working in their life. They did the same thing with God's blessings. We see the reassignment of God's goodness. Instead of calling it the fruit of righteousness, instead of saying we're where we are at because we were a righteous nation and because God loved us and God favored us, and as we obeyed God, we prospered and we increased as a nation. Instead, they said, we have taken unto us horns by our own strength. We did this ourselves. We're the ones that have caused all this. So they reassigned Ken God's goodness. They didn't see that it was God that had prospered them. So you know what then happened? They rejected God's grace. It became a, the fruit of righteousness became a poison to them. Their leisure, their comfort, their situation, instead of being something that endeared God to their hearts and drew them unto Him and caused them as a people to say, boy, let us never forsake the God that loved us and the God that has been so good to us. They said, we did this ourselves and used it to rely on their own selves. And they said, we don't need God. <laughs> Look at us. We don't need God. What do we need God for? We're the ones that have brought this about. You know, sometimes in our life we lose sight of what God's doing and what He's done. You in your life have the things you have because God has, has in His mercy allowed you to. It's the only reason. Somebody's going to say, Preacher, I worked hard and I earned that. Yeah, and there's people... There's people that would have worked harder than you. But they was born unable to work or they was crippled through misfortune. I'm not saying your hard work don't matter. 
But I am saying it don't matter without God. It don't matter without God. Any, uh, listen, you could be struck down. Let me, uh, let's just, let's go walk the halls of UT hospital a little while. And let's just talk. Let's go, uh, let's go up to that trauma floor and let's just walk up and down and look at wrecked, ruined lives. I'm just saying this. You have what you have because God's been good to you. And I got what I got because God's been good to me. God help us that we don't allow that to cause in us a false pride and a false sense of security that causes us to attribute it to our own means and our own abilities and thereby rob us of reliance upon God. I see there were uh, two condemnations given. The prophet's elaborations. And finally, and I'm just going to mention this and be done. I see the prophet's determinations. His diagnoses of their problem. We find two characterizations. Look at verse 13. He says, this is what's brought this about. Number one, ye which rejoice in a thing of naught. Naught is a good King James Bible word that we might use the word nothing. It's come to nothing. It's a thing of nothing. And then he says, which say, have we not taken to us horns by our own strength? So there were two things that caused this really. God strips away all of the, all of the sort of, um, background noise and just, He just comes down to what it really is. Number one, there was a false perception. You rejoice in a thing which is not, which is nothing. Now what was He talking about? Well, what were they rejoicing in? Later on they would say, we have taken to us horns by our own strength. But the prophet was saying this, you know, the things you think have, have secured you and positioned you, they're really nothing. An interesting dichotomy, by the way, in this verse is to think about the word vanity. The word vanity, Brother Ken, means emptiness, nothing. But it also can mean pridefulness. Let me say it this way. God looks at him and says, your security, it's nothing. Your substance, it's nothing. Your sovereignty, it's nothing. Your strength, it is nothing. Your support... It is nothing. Now, God's not doing this because He's trying to criticize them or be cruel, but because it would not be long ere the Assyrians would march in and obliterate the northern kingdom and Nebuchadnezzar would follow and destroy the southern kingdom and carry him away captive. And they thought they were safe. They thought they were secure. They thought because they had money in the bank, food in the pantry, soldiers in the barracks, friends outside the walls, they thought they were safe. And God says, you don't understand. None of that means anything if my judgment falls. It doesn't mean anything. All that we think we have, it means nothing. We are so precariously situated. And let me tell you something. In your life, you think God can't bring us to our knees? He'll do whatever it takes, man. So much of the stuff, and, and I have a weird perspective on life because I'm young, but I hang around old people all the time and go to funerals and hospitals. and It's just a weird way of living. And it gives you a different perspective on things. And I look around at so many of us young, and I, 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 I still take the liberty to call myself a young person. And we'll continue to do so until I'm at least 78. I look at us young people and we think we, we, we say we got our whole life ahead of us. Maybe. Maybe not. I've buried them small enough to fit in a bread box. I've buried them in their mid-twenties. Whole life in front of them. 
until they were standing in front of God. We say, well, I've got a plan. (laughs) That plan can be gone in a minute. Well, at least I've got my health. You see what I'm saying? I'm not saying those things are bad. I'm not saying it's wrong to to feel a, a sense of confidence and appreciation for having those things. I'm just saying all those things could be gone tomorrow. So you better not play with your walk with God. You better not play with your relationship with God. You better not mess around with sin. Because I promise you, God doesn't have to hurl you out into the abyss. All He has to do is give you a gentle push. We are right there on the edge and our life could be destroyed. You say, you think God would do that? I think He would, I think He would do that before He'd let us wreck our testimony. I think He'd do that before He'd let us bankrupt our standing in glory and leave this world a pauper instead of a prince of the Lord God of hosts. I think He would do that before He would let us lay waste to the opportunities that He has afforded us. I think He'd sooner do that than let us have to stand at the judgment seat of Christ with a life of regret behind us. I don't think God wants to do that. And I think God's proven to you and me that He loves us so much He doesn't want to do that. But He'll do what's necessary. He will break the soil. He will. I see their false perception. And I see their foolish pride. Have we not taken us unto us horns by our own strength? The idea being that they had power. They had strength. They could push others. They could govern themselves. They could protect themselves. They could handle themselves. I appreciate, I appreciate the heritage of rugged individualism that is so ingrained into our country. I think that individualism relative to government nanny statism is a good thing. I don't think that it is noble to look to the government to make our life worthwhile and worth living. Now, that's not to say that thank, thank the Lord there's safety nets for people unable and I, please don't take that as any criticism of anything other than what I explicitly said. I'm saying I appreciate the rugged individualism that has defined the character of our country. People going out into a vast wilderness not knowing what was out there and carving out a life. But let me tell you something. This thing of the Christian walk ain't about rugged individualism. This thing of the Christian walk is about daily, persistent, effectual dependence upon His Word and His Spirit and His guidance and His wisdom. And I'm saying this, we can say to ourselves, we've done all this, we've built all this, we've created all this, nobody can touch us. And those were the last words of many a king and many an emperor and many a person. If we're going to change our country, we'll do it by changing ourselves. If we're going to change our church, we're going to do it by changing ourselves. We're going to change our family. We're going to do it by changing ourselves. And we're only going to do it in as much as we turn back to the God that loved us, created us, and has sent His Son to die for us. Let's bow together as a musician comes to play. The altar's open. You don't have to wait for the first note to be played. If, if you have business with God, you just come on this morning. You don't have to wait. Some are coming even now. Father, I pray that You'd bless this invitation. Lord, I believe I've been obedient to You. I hope I have. I trust I have. Lord, I just pray now that You do what we are so unable to do in our hearts and our lives. Lord, bless this invitation. We ask it in Jesus' name.